August 24th, 2016. Our message tonight is called Gloating Enemies and Princely Promises. I want to acknowledge up front it's been a difficult couple weeks. Two weeks ago I stood on this stage in this place and told you I want to win. Seeing our brothers and comrades fall on their faces or shipwreck or abandon the faith only makes me want to win more. I have a new hatred of sin. I thought I hated sin before, but after meeting with almost 200 people and watching the effects of one man's sin on their lives, I can stand here before you today and tell you I hate sin even more. I don't hate sin because it's the enemy of faith. I don't hate sin because of all of the theological reasons that you could hate it. I hate it because of what it does to people. It is debased. It is degrading. It is destructive. And yet I stand here tonight acknowledging hard times and saying the church of the living God has never been more unified. Start with me in Romans 15. I want to give you an encouragement that I received from Pastor Sutherland not one hour ago. Romans 15 and verse 5. May the God who gives endurance. What does He give, saints? Endurance. What does He give, saints? Endurance. He will help you endure. You are not on your own. It's not up to your willpower. Not up to your strength. Our God will give you endurance. All you have to do is call on Him. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Nineteen church leaders, pastors, and elders met and were in a spirit of unity about the most difficult subject, the most difficult decision that you can come to. I want to win. And the living God will give us endurance. If you want to win, if your heart set on Him, if you've clung to His promise, you can win too. And He will bring those of us who are set on Him, holiness or die trying. He will bring us into a spirit of unity and we will face this demon. And we will step on its ugly head. So that with one heart, say it with me, one heart, one heart. and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to bring Him glory. Amen. Somebody yell glory in the house of God. Glory! glory! Tonight, we will end this message in unity. We're going to take communion together. We're going to renew the bloody bonds that have bound us together in unity. And our theme will be holiness or die trying. I want to tell you that during the worship service, a young man prophesied in other tongues. I'm so thankful for the moving of the Spirit. Brother Chris Rezora gave an interpretation and then another came forward, both working together, that speak one message. God is faithful. His promises are trustworthy. Men are often unfaithful, but God, God can be trusted. I want to talk to you tonight about that subject. We have a gloating enemy, but we have princely promises. These two will always be in opposition to each other. 
And you're going to see from every section of the Bible and even from the Talmud that God can be trusted. He is more than willing to let this go in a direction that looks as if His promise may fail. But hang in there, saints. Those that wait upon the Lord, those that wait upon the Lord, He will renew them. Tonight, we will be renewed. What you see on the board before you begins in the Torah, the law of God. And it moves to the Nevim, the prophets of God. And then it moves to the Ketuvim. These are the historical writings that encourage faithfulness. Then in the newer section of our Bible, we look at the Gospels, which is a kind of newer testament law. It's perfectly congruent with that which is found in the Torah. In fact, there are five books of the Torah and there are five books of the early church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts that form the basis, the heart of the New Testament. And then we move to the New Testament book of Revelation, a book of prophecy, just like the Older Testament books called the Nevim. Lastly, we will be in the epistles. The epistles very much are like the historical writings. They teach us how to live out this faith, how to walk in our historical context in a faithful manner. I'd like to begin with a story from Moses. So under Torah over here, we're going to write Moses. His mama called him Moshi, but we're going to call him Moses because we're Americans and we change people's names. We're simply unable to cope with the other languages of the world. If you would turn with me, we will start in Exodus 3. Say there when you were there. How many of you have been here, even here recently in situations where it looked like the promise of God has failed you? In Exodus three sixteen through 17, let's examine the text together. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me. Who is the me there? Moses, and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised, say I have promised. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites. Before we read all of the HIVites there. Can anybody deny that God promised Moses that he would bring Moses specifically along with the people up out of the land of Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This was the promise of God specifically to the man Moses, but also to the nation. Do you agree that God made a promise to Moses? Let us look at Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy 10, in starting in verse 10, we're going to read 10 through 11. Now I had stayed on the mountain 40 days and nights, as I did the first time, and Yahweh listened to me 
at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. That's good news. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land I swore to, the, to their fathers to give them. In Deuteronomy 10, we see that the same promise is repeated. When God says something more than once, can you take it to the bank? Well, we're on this subject. We have a bit of a problem here. Go with me to Joshua. In Joshua, the first chapter... I want you to see in the very first couple verses here. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Thank you, Lord, for pointing that out. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised. As I promised who? Moses. Joshua 1.3 reaffirms the idea that these promises were given to Moses. But here in the first chapter of Joshua, Moses has died and has never set foot in the promised land. That's a problem. It's a problem because God said that He would set foot in the promised land, that He would lead the people there, and He didn't. Turn with me to Numbers. Let us look at chapter 20. Say there when you were there. Can I promise you that I will share with you something tonight that you have not known, has never been shared from this pulpit, and cannot be found in a book? If I promise you that, can I hold your attention to the very end? I stand before you physically sick, sick of sin. I'm sick to death of it. It's made my nose run. I'm carrying a handkerchief for the first time in my entire adult life. But I trust the promises of God. I love the promises of God. I started this race with a giant team. And today, the number of us left fit on one hand. That only has strengthened my resolve. I will not bow the knee to Baal. When things go wrong, I will not go with them. My God is always right. And the fact that there are whimpering eunuchs among us, sniveling cowards that trade the glories of God for the temporary treasures of this world, it only strengthens my desire to see honor brought to the king. This promise given to Moses, it does not happen for Moses. Numbers 20 says one of the reasons why that is, to outline the problem, so to speak. Look at Numbers 20 and verse 7 just to get an overview of it. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff. You and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! I know how he feels on some days. 
Must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out in the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy. In the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So the problem here, quite clearly in Numbers 20, seems to be that Moses has sinned. And because Moses sinned, God's not going to let him go into the land. Have I correctly assessed the problem? Let's just write it in big ugly letters here. Moses sinned. I want to assure you there's never a problem with God. There may be a problem with you, but there's never been a problem with God. When we're thinking about how this must have felt to Moses, look at Deuteronomy 3. In Deuteronomy 3, starting in verse 23, you hear a bit of his heart's cry. He does what a lot of people do regarding this. Moses' sin becomes the fault of the people. No doubt they contributed to it. But I just want you to hear how the great man of God spoke. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord. Can we say that Moses knew how to plead with God? I pleaded with the Lord. Oh, sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Can we say chapter closed? Moses sinned, it's over. How that hurts to have a chapter closed. How that hurts to have a promise ripped out of your soul. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? It does me. That's not how I want this story to end. We'll come back to that. I want to I wanna move on to the prophets. Turn with me to 2 Kings. While you're in 2 Kings, find the second chapter. We're going to look at Elijah and Elisha. In 2 Kings, 2nd chapter, let's begin in verse 9, and we're going to read through 11. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. That's an interesting request. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Did Elisha see Elijah taken? So what's he supposed to get? A double portion. Elijah was one of the most amazing men of God that there's ever been. What is a double portion of that 
look like? Is anybody curious? Could we bring up that slide? These are the miracles of Elijah when you apply the standard that says we're not talking about prophecies. If you prophesy that a drought's coming and the prophecy comes true, we're not calling that a miracle. That's too minor to consider that a miracle. But it is a miracle if you multiply food and bread. Does that make sense? Yeah. Elijah in 1 Kings 17 multiplies bread and oil. He raises a boy also in the 17th chapter. In the 18th chapter, he calls fire from heaven. This is different than prophesying it's going to rain. You can prophesy it's going to rain and in most states you're going to be right some days out of seven. But how many people have called fire out of heaven? He wins a 30-mile foot race with a chariot in the 18th chapter. And then in the first chapter of 2 Kings, two separate times he calls fire from heaven. The last thing that Elijah does before he's taken up in a chariot of fire is he dries up the Jordan River so that he can cross. Does anybody deny that those are outstanding miracles? Is there anyone who wants to take issue with the fact those are amazing miracles? How many of those are there? How many? Seven. How many? Seven. Huh. And Elisha got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So how many should there be there? Let us go to the next slide. Elisha's miracles. His first one. He dries up the Jordan River just like his master. You can find that in 2 Kings 13. He heals waters that have death in them in the second chapter of 2 Kings. Not only does he call down curses on the children who make fun of his hairstyle, but a bear responds to the curse and eats some of the children or at least mauls them. He increases a widow's oil in the fourth chapter. Barrenness is healed also in the fourth chapter. Mind you, he's not prophesying that she's already pregnant. Gehazi comes to him and they're discussing what could be done for this lady. And e Elisha doesn't prophesy she's already pregnant. He asks, what does she want done? And when he finds out she has no heir, then he prays and prophesies she's pregnant. That's an entirely different thing. He's not naming what is there. He's speaking it into existence. Then he raises the very same boy from the dead, miracle number six. He heals food for miracle number seven. He multiplies bread for a hundred men, miracle number eight. You remember Naaman? Naaman had leprosy. And Elijah, Elisha rather, cured Naaman. Gehazi disobeyed Elisha. And he did not do what Elisha said. So the leprosy that Naaman had, Elijah pronounced upon Gehazi and it came. For his 11th miracle, he literally makes an iron axe head float. He blinds an entire Syrian army. His 13th miracle found in 2 Kings 6 is he heals the very same army that he blinded. We're one short of 14. That's tough. What is a double portion of seven? Hey, where's our youth group? Our multiplication facts. Seven times two is what? 14. Are you sure? God said he'd have a double portion. Is 13 a double portion? I don't know what to think about these promises of God. 
Promised Moses he'd go in the land and he died and didn't go in the land. He promised Elisha double. He came close, but it's only 13. Could you turn with me to 2 Kings 13? I want to talk to you about this promise. 2 Kings 13. When we're looking at 2 Kings 13, we're going to focus in on the heart of this problem. It'll be verses 10 through 20. Moses sinned and that was a problem. What was Elijah's problem? What Elisha's problem? What kept him from doing that 14th miracle? You ever wondered how you'd spend the last day of your life? You ever wondered how it would come? What it would look like? What you would find yourself doing? In verse 10, we get the pedigree of a king named Jeroboam. He goes down in history as Jeroboam II. And basically his father was kind of a jerk and his father's father was an even bigger jerk. It's amazing how that works. By the time we get to verse 12, we're zeroing in on exactly that fact. As for the other events of Jehoash, all he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel? Jehoash rested with his fathers and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elijah was suffering from the illness from which he... What was the problem in his life? Elijah gets... Elisha gets sick and dies. In the 6th chapter, he does an outstanding miracle. But in the 13th chapter, he's sick and dying. We're going to come back to that in a minute too, but I want to talk to you just for a second, a brief aside, and then we're going to go right back to the promises about what this man did on his deathbed. Now Elijah was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. It's always interesting how people receive prophets after they're dead. That way they can't speak to you. You can take their words and apply them to someone else. Some of the biggest pansies I've ever seen don pulpits love the lions of the faith. They love guys like Leonard Ravenhill now that they're gone because Leonard Ravenhill's not here to speak to them directly. This man has done nothing good in his life. But now on Elijah's last day, he honors him. Who do you think is more honored, Elijah by these words or the king by Elisha's presence? See, Elisha's presence here, the last day of his life, is a big message. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. On the last day of your life, what will you be encouraging people to do? Because this great prophet of God, the one who almost doubled the miracles of his predecessor, on the last day of his life, he was finding the worst of the leaders out there. And he was telling them, pick up your weapons of warfare. Get one in your right hand and one in your left hand. He did so. Take the bow in your hands. He said to the king of Israel, when he had taken it, Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. Look at the kind of discipleship that is here. You have to wonder, who is it that is doing the action if Elisha's hands are on the king's hands? Who is going to pull the bowstring? This is what discipleship does. 
It teaches people to pick up their weapons of warfare. It puts your hands over their hands so that your success can be credited to them. You make the stage and they stand on it. Jesus multiplied bread and then he gave it to his own disciples to distribute. They didn't multiply it. They just distributed it. Discipleship is selfless. On the last day of this man's life, he's standing with the son of a jerk who was the son of a jerk, teaching him to become something better than a jerk. Watch what happens. Open the east window, he said. And he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said, and he shot. Elisha, the old man on his deathbed, he's still aiming for the worst of the worst. The garden was placed east of Jerusalem. Man was put out on the east side of the garden. When Cain left, he went to the east. When they got to the Tower of Babel, it was in the east. When a destroying wind came into the crops of Egypt, it was from the east. East was always the direction of wrong travel. Elisha says, get weapons in your right hand. Get weapons in your left hand. Pick them up. Aim for the worst of the worst. This is what discipleship does. Friends, if you bet against people, you're going to be right most of the time in your life. But it's a miserable existence. It's so much better to reach down and raise people up. You're going to fail more than you succeed. But if you succeed one time in a thousand and you end up with two like that, they'll chase ten thousand. It's true that we've stumbled here and there in our disciple-making process. But look at the success that is all around you. The Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over a ram, Elijah declared. You will completely destroy the Armenians at Aphek. Isn't that good news? Anybody want to win their battles? Because I want to win. If Elijah said it, do you believe it's true? Then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. When you see this word, strike the ground, in the Hebrew language, the tense implies that it's a beating, not just a single strike. It would be accurate to say in English, take the arrows and beat the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated a ram completely and destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only three times. It seems so strange. You can teach somebody how to aim. You can teach them to pick up their weapons. You can put your hands over their hands. You can show them how you get victory so that they can get it too. You can do it for them. Teach them to do it with you. The one thing that you cannot do is create for them initiative. You cannot create for them the desire to win. You cannot put in their very hearts the desire that says, I would rather be dead striving after holiness than living falling short. That has to come as a person is born of the heavens. It has to. We can teach people to preach. You can show them how to prophesy. You can teach them to exegete the word properly. You can teach people to do so much. But you cannot create in the desire of, in the heart of a man the desire 
to win when nobody's looking. Elijah spent the last moments of his life reaching out to the worst, a son of a jerk, the son of a jerk, helping him become more than that. He put his hands on his hands. He gave him victory, showed him how to aim. He even showed him what victory tasted like. But he became angry when the man showed no initiative. And then what does that verse say? Verse 20, Elijah died and was buried. What is the problem? We get to 13 miracles and Elijah dies. Heard it said before, there's not enough years left to perform my calling. Heard it said before, that brother's life was cut short. Sometimes we think God's promise fails because we sinned. Sometimes we think God's promise fails because we're sick. Well, how about the writings? Why don't we go to the writings for a while? Is that okay? You all awake tonight? You doing okay? In the writings, let us go to Psalm 80. We'll examine the role of Israel. In Psalm 80, we're going to pick up in verses 3 through 7. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Who says that? The person who needs to be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? Who says that? The people that know God is angry with them. You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Why are they praying like that? Why are they calling out like that? Because God has promised throughout the Word to save Israel. And yet they're standing in a state where their neighbors mock them where the majority of the nation is not right with God. And the psalmist is crying out for salvation. Let me ask you, have we seen the salvation of Israel yet? But God promised it. And He promised it so clearly. Look at Psalm 80 and verse 16. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire at your rebuke. Your people perish. What is the problem that Israel is facing? Whether it was an individual sin or it was the sin of others. In other words, the giant crowd. Rebellion. Israel is not experiencing the salvation of the Lord. Man, this is tough. The founder of the nation, Moses, he doesn't get to go in the land, but God said he'd go in the land. The greatest prophets of the people, I mean, they come close, but they still don't get what was promised. The nation itself, so many promises about salvation. That's probably just an Old Testament issue. Let us go to the Gospels. And we will read John 11, 25 through 26 together. Let's see the words of Jesus.
I wouldn't open six topics if I didn't have great faith in you. Not only are we going to do it, in the end, even the children will understand. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody like those words? Anybody like those words? He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Wait, let's focus on this for a second. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. How many of you have buried somebody that you love? The promise of Jesus is unfulfilled as the promise to Moses, is unfulfilled as the promise to Elisha, is unfulfilled as the promise to the nation Israel. I mean, what is really the problem in this passage? Look at John eleven thirty two. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's the problem with the promise? He's already dead. Sometimes the word makes you a promise that is just not possible. How can we say if you believe in me, you will never die when the man is already dead? When you see this, Lazarus it's actually in a place that stinks. Lazarus stinks. Can you feel the enemy gloating? Can you feel the enemy pressuring Moses? You trusted him and it didn't happen. Can you feel the enemy leaning upon Elisha? Yeah, you got sick and you died before you finished. Can you feel the enemy taunting Israel? He never actually saved you. Can you feel the enemy taunting you at every funeral you've ever been to? How about the book of Revelation? Does it contain anything remotely like this? Let us go to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. These are martyrs speaking. Six nine through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Do you hear them? How long, Lord? You promised us salvation. You promised us retribution. How long? Look at verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. How many of you like those words? Wait a little longer. Anybody out there want to wait a little longer? Everything in your life is based on instant gratification. Everything is based on I want it all and I want it right now. I think that was Queen. They got it all. All the sin they could handle and most of them are dead. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Do you mean that these promises have to be waited for? What is the problem that they face in Revelation? They're not yet avenged. 
Anybody been done wrong in a business deal? Anybody been cursed? Anybody had the church or supposed church treat you like the enemy and you stand back and you think, where is the justice of God? He promised to bring justice to the very ends of the earth. Looks like His promises are not coming true. How about the finest Christians that the Bible, finest believers that the Bible ever speaks about? In Hebrews 11, we have a particular group of people that we call Hall of Famers. I'm eventually going to mount this board to a wall. This is ridiculous. Let's read Hebrews 11, 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them, somebody say none of them, none of them received what was promised. Is that a problem for you? It's a problem for me. None received yet. Who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the, Abrahams, uh, the likes of Abraham, Noah, Moses, Jephthah, Gideon, Samson, Barak. I mean, you name them. None of them received. How do you know you can trust God's promises? It's tough. It's tough. How, how could you possibly know? You ever been sitting, thinking about the promises God has given you in His Word? And I don't know. You wonder, did I sin and screw it up and now it can't be done? Did somebody get sick and die? And because of that, it's just thrown everything out of whack. Did the sin of somebody else or rebellion of people in general crash your promise? You ever thought like that? Is it possible that your situation just stinks? Not yet avenged? Not yet received? Man, you focus on these kind of things and what's the outcome of your life? This is how Esau ends up eating a bowl of beans. This is how Balaam prefers the wages of wickedness. I'm going to read you something from the Talmud now that we've touched every area of Scripture. When we are thinking of the Talmud, when you're looking at uh, its validity... I am not here claiming that it's inspired. To me, it is basically wisdom. Talmud means instruction. It's the basis for all the codes of the Jewish law. It contains two sections. One is the Mishnah that the Jews call the oral law. The other is the Jumeirah, which is really commentary on the oral law. There was a rabbi during the time of Jesus, just before him, named Hillel. And uh, I admire many of the things that Hillel wrote, so I recently came into a possession of a copy of the Babylonian Talmud. And since we're doing law, prophets, writings, New Testament law, New Testament prophet, New Testament writing, I thought we would, I don't know, add a seventh category just for fun. And Hillel said, whatever would be hateful to thee, do not do to thy neighbor. Now, you recognize that Jesus took those words and modified them. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. But the section of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, where Hillel is recorded as having said that, is a section speaking about truth and truthfulness. And listen to what it says. Truth is the signet of God, the most holy. 
Let thy yea be in truth and thy nay be in truth. Truth lasts forever, but falsehood must vanish. Listen to how it goes. Can we say that truth is important to God? Promise is important to God? goes on to say, Admonitions concerning faithfulness and fidelity given to promises are. Here's a few examples from the sages. Promise little and do much. To be faithless to a given promise is as sinful as idolatry. To break a verbal agreement, though not legally binding, is a moral wrong. Of the numerous warnings against any kind of deceit, the following may be mentioned. It is sinful to deceive any man, even if he be a heathen. Deception in words is as great a sin as deception in matters of money. Does it sound like Jews value a promise? When, says the Talmud, the immortal soul will be called to account before the divine tribunal, the first question will be, Hast thou been honest and faithful in all of thy dealings? So how is it that God requires you to let your yes be yes and your no be no? How is it that God requires of you truth in your inmost being? How is it that God says if you make a promise, He will not hold you guiltless if you fail to keep that promise? How is it that God does that? And we have so many unfulfilled promises in the Bible. Moses didn't get to go on the land. Elisha did 13 miracles during his lifetime. Israel, still waiting on their salvation. Jesus said you'd never die. Very same chapter, Lazarus is dead. Even the martyrs in Revelation crying out in heaven are like, hey, bro, what's up? That's how Buddy would say it. How long we got to wait here? Every Hall of Famer, those whose faith was beyond most in this room, they didn't receive what was promised. What are we to think about that? Look at Hebrews 3 and verse 2. Is your sin too big? Actually, let's not. Let's, let's work our way backwards. Since we ended in the epistles, why don't we pick up in the epistles? Would that be okay? I'm going to drag Moses out for a while. I got a feeling that's the one that you want to know about. Let's look at Hebrews 12 and verse 3. I'm going to give you some reasons for hope here. Let me just put that in big letters over here. We're going to work from the epistles back to the Torah. When we're talking about those hall of famers, what is the epistle going to say? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's true that no Hall of Famer received what was promised in his lifetime, but do you know what they also did not do? They did not quit. They did not lose heart. They did not... <clears throat> Oscar Mayer out. They didn't do it. They hung in there. They died in the faith. Believing that he who promised was able to perform what he had promised. They set us an example that culminates in Christ. Christ was promised the kingdoms of the world. Do you see him as king over India yet? Do you see him as king over the United States yet? No, we see him at the right hand of God. But no one has yet received what is promised. They set us an example 
Jesus set us a perfect example. If they didn't quit, let me ask you, are you going to quit? What about the other half of you? Are you going to quit? Matthew 24, 12 says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Will you be in the most or will you be in the minority? Oh, listen to me, Abimbola. I am a minority Christian because most are going to go cold. This one's going to be flaming hot. They didn't quit and they were commended for their trust in God. I refuse to quit. Are you going to quit? No. Are you going to quit? If you quit, there is no way you will ever receive what was promised. You may not have it now, but you will have no hope of having it if you Oscar Mayer out. It's an easy thing to quit. I've met a lot of quitters in my life. They're usually bragging about their accomplishments and their great abilities while they quit. My father suspended me in high school more than once. He happened to be my high school principal, then the high school superintendent. He also made me shave publicly with a women's razor more than once in the cafeteria. Pop, Pop believed in holding a righteous standard. And though he disciplined me at school, and it was severe, it was a public whipping and a suspension, although I was in the 10th grade. He did pat me on the back at home because the reason I hit that boy so hard in the face was he was a quitter. And Pop didn't like people who quit. Let everybody on the team down. And we needed him. We were hurt. I still don't like quitters. You know that cowards will not enter the kingdom? You know that? You do not have to win. You just cannot quit. And he will credit you with the victory. You know why those men are in the Hall of Fame? Jephthah was the son of a whore. You know why he's in the Hall of Fame? He didn't quit. Barak was such a coward that he wouldn't go without Deborah, a woman. But do you know why he's in the Hall of Fame? He didn't quit. Samson lived most of his life in a pretty subpar fashion, but he didn't quit. He died in the faith. Are you a quitter? Do you want to win? I don't want the enemy to gloat. I got a princely promise, and because I have a princely promise, I'm not going to quit. They can fall by my left, fall by my right. Those that have taken our best and spit on it, I will step over their dead bodies on my way to glory. I'm not going to quit. Are you going to quit? No. Let us work towards our martyrs. Could somebody read? Let me put on the board here, Hebrews 12, 2. Was it 2 or 3? 12, 3. Look at our martyrs. When you're considering what the martyrs were told, they were told to wait a little longer. How about Psalm 27, verse 14? Say there when you're there. Say there when you're there. Oh, come on. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. Not hard to find. When you find it, start to work your way to the left. And then proudly announce, like Columbus, you have discovered it and landed on it. (laughs) Amen. Wait for Yahweh. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The historical writings teach us the right way to live 
is to wait on the Lord being strong and doing what? Taking heart. What did Hebrews tell us to do? Do not lose heart. See, you have the ability to reach into the heavens and grab hold of the heart of God. He will deposit in you, but you have the obligation not to lose what He's given you. Have you grown tired of waiting? Have you judged Him not faithful? See, I want to admit to you, some promises linger. But Psalm 27 says to wait. How about Isaiah 64 and verse 4, looking at the prophets? Say there when you're there. Say there when you're there. Get there. Isaiah's one of the larger prophetic books. From the middle of your Bible, you can work your way to the right. All right, we there in every corner of the room. Don't you quit on me. Listen to me, youth group. Don't you quit on me. All right, if these little girls are going to make it, then I surely expect you on the back row to make it. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who... See, the prophets tell us, although the promise is unfulfilled, if you wait, what will happen? He will act on your behalf. How many of you want God to act on your behalf? Recently, the Adarmes family has seen a promise fulfilled, but for years it's gone unfulfilled. Recently, John and Joy Dang saw a promise fulfilled, but for years it was unfulfilled. We fight for our children. We fight for the promises of God. But if you quit, if Alex said, oh, this whole adoption thing, I thought it'd take a year. I thought it'd take two. You know, but now it's too many thousands of dollars and too much time. You know what he wouldn't be holding in his arms? A son. If John and Joy said, we're tired of being disappointed, we're not sure that God's word's true. Maybe it's true for somebody else, but not for us. They wouldn't be watching Sarah walk around like she is today. Amen. When you wait on the Lord, what does he do? He acts on your behalf. That's the nature of the God that we serve. By the way, let's go to Revelation 19. Starting in verse 11 and reading through 18. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Oh my on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all of the earth. Oh, saints, those martyrs, do they have to wait forever or is there a day coming when our king will return and repay all of the evildoers for evil deeds? 
Will they have to wait forever? Will they have to wait forever? And neither will you. The question is not, will God come through, but are you willing to wait until He does? Do you know what we call that? Faith. See, if you give up before He comes through, you didn't really trust that His promise was true. Hmm. How about our friend Lazarus? How does that story end? I'd like to tell you that when we're looking at the epistles, we're encouraged that those that went before us waited even to the place of death. When we're looking at the book of Revelation, we're encouraged to wait. He is coming. And now when we look at the Gospels and you see what happens with Lazarus, how about John eleven thirty nine through 44? Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. What is he called? A dead man. By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. You know this passage. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? She didn't know how long it was going to take, how long she'd have to wait. And Jesus didn't tell her. It's already been four days that he's dead. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus had no problem waiting. He had no problem trusting. But he knew that the people had a problem waiting and a problem trusting. So he spoke out loud things that would help you wait on the Lord, that would help you trust in the Lord. When he said this, Jesus called in what kind of voice? What kind of voice? Lazarus, come out! Jesus is not hedging his bets. He's not giving that denominational coward prayer that says, if it be your will, in thy name. Whose name? What's the will? He cries out in a voice where every man standing there hears. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Do you know why? He trusted his father. He trusted him. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Do your promises have grave clothes wrapped on them? Have you buried them? Are you scared to even tell people what the promises are? Because you feel like an idiot, it's been so long. You're pretty sure that like Moses, you sinned and screwed it up. Like Elijah, maybe you got spiritually sick and your promise died. You could be like the nation of Israel. It wasn't me, I mean, to everybody else. But somehow or another, promise is not happening. Maybe like Lazarus, your promise has begun to stink. Hmm. What could you learn from a passage like this? Well, what we find out with Lazarus is that death is temporary. Life is forever. He was dead. But he's going to be alive forever and ever. In Revelation 24 through 6, you find out that they come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Lazarus was resurrected again. He actually experiences death twice. 
He dies, is resurrected here, dies again later of old age. But he will be resurrected at the last day. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Well, how do you square those things? He also said, you won't sin. Apparently, he's not through with you or Lazarus yet. I wonder whether he was through with Israel, through with Elisha, or through with Moses. Is that a fair question? Let's go to Psalm 80. Read 17 through 19. Israel standing in a state of rebellion. But listen to their prayer. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The what? Man at your right hand. The son of man. Who called himself that? Do you have raised up for yourself? Do you mean that there would be somebody at his right hand? Somebody who was raised up literally from the dead? Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord, our God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Hebrews 2, 8 through 9 says, We don't see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus raised to the right hand of God. Is there hope for Israel? How about Romans 11, 25 through 27? Let's talk about the promise for just a minute. Romans 11. Twenty-five through twenty-seven. I do not want you to be ignorant, or where I'm from, ignorant, from this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Do you mean to tell me that the promise that Israel's waiting on was delayed for a reason? Do you mean that God is capable of making you a promise Delaying the fulfillment of the promise because he wants to benefit lots of people, not just you? How do you know if the promise that you're waiting on is being delayed for somebody else's benefit or not? Because God's a good God. He's not sadistic. He's not trying to torture you. If you've been barren for five years and you hear somebody was barren for six years and had a child, what are you? You're encouraged, hopeful, aren't you? Well, it's good for you, but it's bad for the one that had to wait the extra year, right? Do you really want your life to be useful to the Lord? Are you ready to wait for the Lord? Are you ready to fight for the promise of the Lord? Or do you just want what you want and you want it now? Because, friends, that's idolatry. Is He your Lord? And so all Israel will be saved. Do you mean to tell me that the Apostle Paul believed that the promise for Israel still stands? The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Many people have said that the rebellion of Israel and the sin of the masses has destroyed the promise of God. But God says that he will take away their sins. When you're thinking on this, other sins, they do affect you. But that's only temporary. Do you know what the promise is? It is forever. 
So let me ask, is it possible for somebody else's sin to take away your promise? An interesting thing as we work backwards through this, none of the Hall of Famers received the promise in their life. Even those who were martyred in the faith were still waiting on promises to be fulfilled. Jesus was capable of standing making a promise that you would never die while staring at a dead man. In the writings, we find out that Israel is crying out for salvation, but the rebellion and their sin seems to have blocked it. But in the Newer Testament, we find out that that blocking for a temporary time meant that you got a chance to be saved. And that God was able to save them yet still. The very same time that they're crying out in Psalm 80 for a Redeemer, they actually name Him as at the right hand and have raised up with them. That's an incredible truth. How about Elijah and Elisha? Let's go back to our graph again. Could we have Elijah, the seven miracles? Elijah's seven miracles. Now our next slide. Elisha, 2 Kings 6, his last major miracle. In his lifetime, healing a Syrian army of blindness. One short in his lifetime. Promise of God came close. Close, but no cigars. It's a bad day when there's no cigars. How do you reconcile a faithful God who wears truth as a signet with a promise that comes close but fails? Do we serve the kind of God that comes close? Or do we serve the kind of God that is faithful to the uttermost? In 2 Kings 13, look at verse 21. <coughs> Once while some Israelites were burying a man, Suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. What is Elisha? He's dead. Dead and buried. He got sick and died. His body was too weak to carry out the promise. He died. He spent his last day helping a jerk, the son of a jerk who was the son of a jerk. Poor guy died in failure and sickness. But when the body touched Elisha's bones, somebody say Elisha's bones. The man came to life and stood to his feet. The promise of God is so powerful it has impregnated Elisha's bones with power. Your promises may seem to fail in your lifetime, but what the Hall of Famers knew that we forgot is we serve a resurrecting God. What are you waiting on that hasn't happened? What are you waiting on that you're saying... It can't ever happen now. I'm too old. I'm too sick. I've sinned too much. They've messed up too much. Because how much did Elisha contribute to this process? His bones were in a grave while he was in the presence of God. Oh, God never needed much from you. He's faithful to his own word. If he said a double portion, buddy, it may take a resurrection from the dead, but he'll give you that double portion. You know what he didn't tell him? You'll have a double portion within your lifetime as you like it. God is faithful to his promise. Somebody say he's faithful. He's faithful. 
In 2 Kings 13, 21, we find out that resurrection power is what we have hope in. How about our brother Moses? It's a difficult case. Poor Moses. Can anybody deny that Moses sinned? How is it that Moses sins and he doesn't get anything good? And you sin all the time and you get good stuff. Well, it's because we're dispensationalists, right? If you don't recognize sarcasm when you hear it, learn to. When you think of Moses, do you think of Moses the sinner? Is that what you think of? You know, a man does something and you have to wonder. You do it once. Is it your defining characteristic or are you just a man who did it? I mean, I stole the candy bar when I was in second grade. Do you see me as a thief? Why not? I stole. Doesn't that make me a thief? Somewhere in stealing a candy bar, if that became two candy bars, then a cash register, then a car at somewhere, would you see me as a thief? How do you tell the difference between when someone happens to have sinned, but it's not really them, it's sin working in them, and when somebody has become the sin? How do you tell that? Could we look at Hebrews 3, 2? There is something else that Moses is. Moses is not just a sinner. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. How did God see Moses? Faithful. Faithful in all God's house. Did Moses plead with God, please let me go in the land? Did he ask? Was it wrong for him to ask? But God said, don't talk to me about this anymore. You know what Moses did next? He died, and God buried him. He only saw the land from a distance. Never in Moses' lifetime did his feet touch the land. Go with me to Matthew 17. On the way to Matthew 17, stop in Psalm 145. I'm just doing it because I can. In Psalm 145, look at verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all His promises in loving to all His hands have made. Psalm 145 says God is faithful in loving. But poor Moses, he sinned and he doesn't get his promise. God said it in Exodus 3. He said it in Deuteronomy 10. It was confirmed in Joshua 1. God acknowledged that he made the promise in Numbers 20, but Moses' sin was so big, he didn't get to go in. Does that make you uncomfortable? Because if Moses' sin was bigger than his faithfulness, <clears throat> how are you doing? We got any rock strikers in here? Are you in Matthew 17? Matthew, not 16, not 18, 
70. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Hey, where is that mountain? Anybody seen that mountain? They say it's Mount Tabor in Israel. Whether it's Mount Tabor in Israel or not, I don't know. But you know what I know it was not? It was not a mountain in the United States. It was not a mountain in Norway. It was not a mountain in South America. It's not a mountain in China. Where did they live? Oh, so they're on a mountain in Israel. I'm just curious. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Just then there appeared before them who? Moses. Let me ask you, did Moses' feet get to touch the promised land? Yes. You thought his promise fell to the ground. God's promises don't fail. You just failed to wait on them. His feet touched the ground. Come on, church. It might take a resurrection, but God's promises don't fail. They don't fail. They don't fail. You fail, but God doesn't fail. I want to tell you something. Faithfulness outweighs sin every time. God's not going to punish a man who trusts Him. All of His ways are right. He upholds His faithful one. I don't got time to teach you because it's 9 o'clock. But that's not the only time Moses' feet touched the ground in Israel. He's going to rock the entire world. You just got to read a little further in the book. Two men were at the ascension. Two men were at the resurrection. And two men are going to show up in Revelation 11. They got a certain job description. One of them calls fire from the skies. And another one does all the plagues he wants to do. I never met men like that. And you know where their feet are standing when they do it? In the promised land. Church, you thought his promise failed in the law, but it didn't. It just took a resurrection to complete it. You thought his promise failed in the prophets. It didn't. It just took a resurrection to complete it. You thought his promise failed in the writings, but there'll be a national resurrection of Israel that will complete it. Every word of Jesus is true because he is the resurrection and the life. Do you know why the ancients were commended? They were commended because they believed in the resurrecting power of God. They believed it so strongly that the promise was not fulfilled in their own lifetime. It would be fulfilled with us in the resurrection of the dead. Do you live for this life or are you living for life that is really life? Oh. Faithfulness overcomes sin. I told you that this message was titled Gloating Enemies and Princely Promises. I'd like to close with a favorite scripture of mine. This is from the book of Micah. And in Micah, it'll be in the seventh chapter. Peyton, you can start to work your way up here. Micah, 7th chapter, 7th verse. I want everybody to get there. Say there when you were there. there. 
We have problems. We have promises. We have an enemy that gloats. But we have a prince who is good to his word. Listen to Micah. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. Why do you hope? You hope that faithfulness like Moses will overcome sin. Why do you hope? You hope that if you don't accomplish in this life what you were hoping to accomplish, that something in your legacy and your death like Elijah's will accomplish it. Why do you hope? You hope that the promise of God will stand despite the rebellion of others. Why do you hope? Because even if you're in a situation that stinks, Jesus is able to take your grave clothes off and you walk in new life. Why do you hope? Because there's a day of vengeance coming upon the whole world and God will act on behalf of those who hope and wait in Him. Why do you hope? Because Hebrews 12, 3 tells us an example was set for us by those who endured before us, but they were not quitters. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I will wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Say, my God, my God. will hear, will hear. Me. me. My God, my God. will hear, hear. Me. me. Watch the next verse. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against Him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Moses did. You will. You get disciplined as sons. Until He pleads my case and establishes my right, He will bring me out into the light. I will see His righteousness. You have a gloating enemy, but you have a princely promise. Don't you gloat over me, devil! Though I have fallen, yet will I rise. Hang on to your promise. Grab it because He who made it is faithful. Grab it because God has never let a promise fall to the ground. Grab your promise because the alternative is everlasting shame and contempt. I want Him. I'm just going to be honest. I want Him worse than I want friendship with you. I want Him worse then I want my wife. I want him worse than I want my children. I want him like I've never wanted anything ever before. And he will give me every other thing that I need. I will not be seduced away from the call. I cannot be bought away from the call. And I sure can't be intimidated off of the call. He who made the promise, he's faithful. He's able to perform it. This is the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the power that Jesus walked in and the Apostle Paul taught about. We are living in it. All is not lost, friends. We will see the light of life again. Amen? We're going to do something as Peyton begins to play. We're going to stand to our feet.